Welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast as we continue our catch-up of comics released in the month of November. So, your host as always, Alan, the owner of Coffee and Heroes, a comic book store in Smithfield, Belfast. Uh, joined this evening once again by Mr. Keith Miller and we're recording this just after Christmas. How are you, sir? I am good. I'm not bad. Well, I, I say I say good, not bad. I've got a real habit of, of downgrading as I go. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm very good. Um, just back in Belfast after... Uh, I guess over a week uh, at home on the north coast with the with the, the parents and the family um, and that uh, it was good to get up. It's good to get back again. Um, it was lovely to be in the store today and uh, see yourself and uh, Kaylin and pick up my uh, pick up my pool list. I did spend Christmas getting caught up, um, so I am reading my stuff on the day that I bought it. it may not date me the day it was released because we had the the weird Christmas you know closures and stuff. Uh, but but yeah, all good, all good. What about yourself? Do you have a good one? Yeah, hundred percent. Nice and uh, relaxed for a majority of Christmas. Just lots of eating, a little bit too much drinking, a lot of sleep, but plenty of reading and also catching up. Uh, I'm finally getting to watch Hawkeye. Just still got the finale to go, but I'm hoping to to watch that tonight, and then we can have a good detailed chat on that in the next pod. I would say, and maybe even chat of the the new Star Wars show that dropped today as well. Uh, the, which I watched the first episode of this afternoon, uh, the, uh, the 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 book of book of Boba Fett. Already ahead uh, of me. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Honestly, I think John Favreau is the savior of the Star Wars universe. Well, I mean, the man essentially set up the Marvel universe in the first place, and then went, mm-hmm. "This is too easy. Let's go and let's go and rejig another <laughs> universe." And uh, yeah, if this is anywhere near as good as the Mandalorian, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. As anybody who knows me knows, I'm not the biggest Star Wars guy, but I love the Mandalorian. So if this is along the similar lines, you can definitely count me in for that. Uh, you're not a kick in the arse off there, Alan. Definitely. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we're basically going to be covering uh, issues on this pod, which is for, uh, which were released on the 17th of November. So, we still a little bit of catching up to do, but we're coming along well. So, 17th of November saw uh, 24 titles for myself. This was a total of 10 DC, 3 Marvel, and 11 Indie. And your totals look very different to mine this month. Mm, yep, I had a couple of titles more than yourself. I had 26 titles in total. Uh, I was two behind you in DC with eight. I was eight ahead of you in Marvel with 11. And I was four behind you with uh, on Indy with seven. Yeah, but I mean, there's a really good range of stuff that we're going to be discussing here. There's going to be something from all of the, well, sort of from the big two, but also plenty from the indie side of things as well. And we even have a little bit of rule breaking in this pod, but I'm sorry it had to be done. We'll, uh, we'll get I to that. I make them and you break them. Well, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm happy to break them, you know, every so often, but I'll try to keep it to a minimum for the next, uh, let's say, seven years as uh, <laughs> the rest of a certain series comes out, but we'll get to that anyway. But yeah, as ever, we'll break it down into sort of quick picks, honorable mentions, that kind of thing, which the spoilers are fairly light on, and then we'll have a pick of the week each, in which case there'll be probably heavier spoilers through that as we go into specifics in the issues so i'll kick things off with a dc title it was a brand new number one that launched this week which was robin's number one and it's interesting there there seems to be a real renaissance in robin titles at the moment that probably more so than we've seen in many years you know this is a new title from tim seeley with art by baltimore rivas You've had the Joshua Williamson, Gleb Milnikoff title for Robin, which is focused on Damian Wayne. You have the Robin and Batman three-issue miniseries from uh, Dustin Wayne and Jeff Lamar. You have, obviously, the Nightwing title, former Robin, you know, leading, a, leading the way for DC titles. So with this one, 
it was really interesting. I thought because for so long Robin has been, you know, the light to Batman's darkness. You know, many different people have come along to take up the mantle of Robin to very much varying degrees of success and failure. And what's interesting about this title is I think fans have long debated over who is the best Robin. Which for you is? Of course, it's Dick Grayson. Well, you know, I beg to disagree only because Dick Grayson's the best character out of all of them. But Damien wins West Robin. But you know, but what's cool about this? I mean, that 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 you know, if you, if we take if we take Nightwing aside, yeah, Dick Grayson aside, he being a, a, his own man, then it's clearly Tim Drake. Oh God, oh, you're killing me with that one. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting you bring that up as you were in the store today when someone came in with the very specific request of Red Robin titles. So uh, there there clearly are a few Tim Drake uh-huh. fans out there at the very least. There has to be someone, I suppose, that likes him. But anyway, yeah, no fans of <laughs> fans long debate over who's the best Robin, you know, who's had the most profound effect on Bruce's life. You know, but what if they all actually sat down at a table and argued their merits amongst themselves? You know, after the, this uh, series kicks off with an attack on Bloodhaven, which, you know, the, the Robins foil working flawlessly as a team, but then they all sit down to dinner and... And that's the crux of this issue, to be honest. It's it's mostly just these guys sitting around a, a table talking about what they mean to Bruce, what they think he means to them. Uh, although certainly things take a turn by the end of the issue and the real plot moving forward becomes clear. So this issue I just thought was great. It, it genuinely felt like just hanging out with a bunch of characters we're familiar with and listening to them talk about their insecurities as well as their achievements while also playing a prank or two on each other as well just to show that they really are family. So... I thought the art was clean and crisp. It was colourful where it needs to be and, and it definitely takes a sinister turn towards the end of the issue. So, great start to a new series, I thought. Um, I think we're yeah. both on this one, are we? Yeah, we are. Um, I really enjoyed it. What you say about the colours is is exactly right. I mean, the point that, you know, Robin was supposed to be the colour to Batman's darkness, um, you know, is reflected, I think, in the colour palette of this. Um, you see Dick very much taking the, the lead as the senior brother, uh, you know that sort of figure where where Bruce hasn't always been the father that he needs to be. Uh, you know, Dick very much fills that role. Um, but yeah, it's uh, and I mean, uh, you mentioned them sitting down to dinner, but they they weren't sitting down to dinner so much as they were sitting down to figure something out uh, that was very much key to the key to the plot and uh, and how that plot developed was great. Yeah, loved it, loved it. Yeah, great first issue, I thought, and that's going to be a six-issue mini-series, that one. So, Robin's number one, my first pick. Uh, for yourself, I believe we have another new number one. Yes, sir. It's Doctor Who, Empire of the Wolf, um, which is the kickoff of Titan's new mini-series featuring the eighth Doctor, who, for the uninitiated, was Paul McGann, uh, who only had the, the one movie and then the appearance uh, more recently in the new series. And the 11th Doctor, who was Matt Smith, the baby Doctor, um, and also Rose Tyler, who was played by Billy Piper, um, who, you know, we, we have two Rose Tylers in here, uh, both the original and the, the, the badass Empress from the last the last uh, comic series. Um, I don't think you need to be very familiar with all of that to enjoy this. It's a it's a really great sort of yarn Feels very much in the tradition of the classic uh, multi-series, you know, uh, you know the, the the multi-doctor stories that that occurred in the in the classic series. You know, the two doctors, the three doctors, the five doctors. While this story is maybe unlikely to ensnare someone like yourself, uh, a non-Hoovian, Alan, um, <laughs> the tale of our Rose Tyler, who went off to live in another universe with a human clone of the tenth Doctor, who was David Tennant. 
uh, being ripped back to her own, which is our universe, plagued by visions of an alternate Rose uh, who became a world conqueror rather than a world protector. Um, is a good it's a good story and you know it's just handy for all of this that there's a there's a doctor on hand to help it's just not the doctor that rose knows or knows anything about the time war or the future of gallifrey and and the eighth doctor because all of that stuff was the tail end of the classic series you know and meanwhile we have 11 who is really keen for a break after losing his close companions the pawns um we don't quite see that team up in this issue but i'd say Eight and eleven teaming up with Rose to fight the other Rose will be good fun. And Jodie Hauser, the writer, has again done a great job of capturing the voices of the characters and presents a fantastic story that's well paced and balanced. While Roberta in Granada, who is now well experienced in the in the Hooniverse and is also involved actually in the Star Trek Mirror War crossover, uh, does a great job of sort of capturing the the likenesses of the characters, you know, the faces and the movements of the characters in the same way as, as, as Hauser captures the voices. So yeah, great, great issue. I think, uh, I think Stephen probably loved this one. I haven't spoken to him about it. Yeah. We have a good few Doctor Who fans in the store. I've, I've spoke about it before. It's a, a fandom that I think just passed me by at this point. And given the sheer volume of new content that comes out these days, it's, it's always hard to go back and discover things. I think because we're, we're so relentlessly given new content, new content. Uh, and as we all know, new is always better. So uh, it can be a little... <laughs> all right is that the case <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little tough to go back especially when there's so much of it but uh yeah there's enough guys in the store who love doctor who to say that i think the that they definitely enjoyed this so yeah doctor who empire of the wolf number one we move away from the indie side of things and titan comics to moving across to marvel uh for my next honorable mention which is dark ages three uh written of course by tom taylor and art by iban Quello and for me, this begins Tom Taylor's official swan song from Marvel Comics after he signed an exclusive contract with DC. Now, if Dark Ages does maintain the quality of the first three issues, then it's not a bad way to bow out, but I'm not going to lie. I'm raging we're not going to see another volume of Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, uh, exclusive isn't forever. It isn't forever indeed. You know, I, I have a sneaky feeling he's going to take over Justice League uh, because Bendis has left at just the same time and... I, I think the timing matches up, but we'll wait and see. You know, I digress. You know, Dark I would say just just on your digression, I would say that if we if someone like him doesn't take over Justice League, I might I might have to bin it. It's a uh, it's a wee bit. The thing that's keeping me on Justice League at the minute actually is the Justice League Dark backstory, yeah, uh, which is Ram V and is is great, but the the Justice League story itself is a wee bit hit and miss. More recently, missed than hit, I would say. It's interesting because we, you know, just to take a slight sidebar here, we were chatting in the store today about DC's sort of setup for, you know, main story and backup stories. You know, I was talking about Joker and how the main title is incredible, but the backups with punchlines serve no interest to me whatsoever. Oh, dear. Hard work. But what I found with Justice League, as you say, it's the opposite. You read the back, the quote, back matter first of Justice League Dark, (laughs) and then you go, okay, I'll give Justice League a read while I'm here. But anyway... I will digress, as I say. We're talking about Dark Ages 3, and I thought this was another excellent installment of Taylor's apocalyptic vision of the Marvel Universe. And there's one character death in particular here that is a big one. So, by now, Apocalypse's plans, they're coming to the fore. He plans to awaken the cosmic being known as the Unmaker, and he's brainwashed many heroes across the Marvel Universe, including Mr. Fantastic and Iron Man, of course, because Iron Man's so weak-minded, to suit his goals. 
Uh, the remaining heroes prepare to take on Apocalypse as the series reaches its midpoint. I like that you refrained yourself from responding to my Iron Man comment. That was good. So, uh, yeah, Iban Quello's art is, continues to be great. You know, there's detailed, fast-paced scenes, plenty of clean lines. Mr. Miller's favourite, of course. And lots of cool touches mm-hmm. as well. There's really cool redesigns for the characters that I like. You know, now that they're living in a technology-free world. There's lots of thought that's went into this world building, and I think these little touches really do add to it as well. So, yeah, we're only at the halfway stage, so it being Tom Taylor, get ready for more heartache and heroics in the issues to come. So, what's your take on Dark Ages? Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. I like, you know, the the the, the what-if kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's funny how, you know, they... <clears throat> What if is the banner under which, you know, all of those things that aren't quite the 616 Marvel Universe fall under? And there's so many of them about, you know, there is dark, there's dark edges and there, but they're also doing these what if Miles Morales and what if Peggy Carter under the what if title. So I can't understand why this isn't just a what if as well. Yeah, it you know what sense. I mean? Uh, it absolutely would have, you know, and it's, I, I would like that tidiness. But yeah, I mean, I right back on, you know, Edge of Apocalypse was back in the day was phenomenal as a you know as an alternate universe story and again this is this is just great um those those sorts of how would those characters have turned out if if this thing had happened that removed all electricity from the world um interesting stuff well we're going to stick with uh, marvel i believe for your next honorable mention we surely are sir um moon knight number five uh which you're also on i believe i am indeed yep fully up to date yeah <clears throat> yeah this uh uh, this series has not skipped the beat yet with regard to the story, the writing, the art quality, and this issue was no exception whatsoever. Just enriching all of the internal mythos of this lead character, you know, introducing a real solid high concept and a well-rounded supporting cast. Um, Jed McKay, you know, takes another really compelling look under Mark Spector's mask to reveal the toll that serving Konshu has taken on him, both as a person and as a hero. Uh, going to show that this series can be just as potent and impactful without a punch ever being thrown. Um, the issue is a self-reflective one, I think, for Spectre, exploring why he himself can be such a violent person linked to his father, who was, we understand, a rabbi, and therefore Mark, you know, like Mark, his father was a servant of a deity, and his father was also... The kindliest person he's ever known. Um, it's, it's it's really really cool stuff. Really, you know, for a character that is elevating up from the you know the the C list to the B list, uh, soon to be A list. You know, with the release of of uh, of his his likeness under another medium. Um, the story itself cuts beautifully between Mark's Sopranos like therapy sessions and the Moon Knight's mission to discover the person who's haunting him. And you know, once again, this is beautifully illustrated by Alessandro Capuccio and Rochelle Rosenberg, uh, who I have learned uh, this week uh, runs a martial arts dojo uh, in the States. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, that that work with, with shadows and, you know, the supernatural glow whenever Moon Knight either suits up in his armor and his, or is in his, in his Mr. Knight suit, you know, they work fantastically in counterpointing one another. And it's, it's, it's just like, Capuccio and Rosenberg are just on a quest to make every panel into a poster and, uh, and they're doing it so so well I mean and just the, the fact that, that McKay has just has has got this central high concept that Moon Knight you know with the Midnight Mission is there to serve his community by night 
uh, you know, on a small scale, um, in a in a in a nice way. It's just it's it's just such a strong concept. It really is. It's uh, yeah, it just appeals to me in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's so good. It's just that the community based stuff, and then you know, there's been a lot of talk prior to the pandemic of within the entertainment industry that that cities and towns should have night czars to uh, to look after the nighttime economy. You know, the the clubs and the the bars and 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 uh, and all of the, the welfare of people frequenting them. You know, so there's something in there I think that resonates with me. You know, on a, on a on a whole lot of levels, but such a good book. Yeah, it's a thoroughly excellent book. I mean, I really like the comparison you make there with The Sopranos. It was something that I don't immediately think of, but just makes so much sense when you when you talk about it. But yeah, it's just it's perfect balance, great storytelling, great action. The art, again, I think we've mentioned it before with Alessandro Capuccio, that it's someone that I'm just not familiar with their work, but I think mm. if I see them on a title, but at the same time, I don't want to see them leave Moon Knight to go to another title. But if I see their name pop up at a creator-owned title or mm. another Marvel title, I think I'll definitely be uh, jumping on it just for that reason. So, <clears throat> I mean, the uh, the revelation that uh, that Rochelle Rosenberg is a martial artist and runs dojo uh, would suggest that she probably has a certain amount of input into the beautiful, beautiful violence in this book. <laughs> Yeah, I love that that has now made a fan out of you of this run for life just because of that fact. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, no, Midnight Five, it continues to be one of our biggest pulls in store. And, and again, there's a reason for that just because of its quality. So, yeah, Midnight Five, we move away from that onto a little bit of indie stuff from myself. So, next up, I have Radio Apocalypse number one. This is written by Ram V with art by Anand RK. So, the, the blurb for this one is essentially like in the near future, an asteroid strike has ravaged the Earth leaving humanity to gather in settlements. And the main settlement we're focusing on in Radio Apocalypse is Bakerstown, which contains the last remaining radio station, where messages are broadcast to the inhabitants along with other survivors. And then as more survivors advance upon Bakerstown, including young couple Tan and Callie, along with the thief Rion, Radio Apocalypse essentially stands as a beacon in the night, broadcasting music and warding off the horrors of the new world. I mean, Ram V really loves his music stuff. I mean, we, we talk, talked about Blue and Green before, uh, just as an example, focused on jazz. And Ram V in general, he just continues to be one of our favourite writers in store in general. And, and his main strength is his diversity. You know, he's just as home writing something character-driven and personal such as Blue and Green as he is with writing the ha- the heist hijinks of Catwoman. He can balance the horror of Justice League Dark with the high science fiction of Venom. And then he just throws in a wee post-apocalyptic world just for good measure as well. You know, he's he's paired up again with his Blue and Green collaborator for Radio Apocalypse, Anand Arkea, and it's a creative team that I love. Now, I do get that Anand Arkea's art may not be for everyone, you know, but I love the loose, chaotic, almost sort of visceral art style. This is not a book for lovers of clean lines. I'll just say that right now. <laughs> but for me, it has its own atmosphere and tension as a result. And, and some of the creature designs reminded me of a certain John Carpenter movie. And uh, that's no bad thing. So there's also the fact as well, Ram has, has said he listened to a lot of music while writing the comic. And that soundtrack found its way into the comic itself. You know, there's one particularly tragic scene in issue one that involves the use of Bruce Springsteen's I'm on fire. When a character is facing death, you know, saying she used to listen to this song with her father. You know, it's just, it's little details like that. You know, Ram V really understands world building and character building especially. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, certainly for the Venom run, we've talked about it before, but I don't think it's a coincidence that he's focusing on the family type stuff with Dylan and, you know, mm. Al Ewing's handling the high science fiction side of it with, you know, 
with Eddie. So, yeah, I thought this was a really interesting word we've dropped been dropped into. It's only a five-issue miniseries. And again, I'm really, really looking forward to issue two. So, was this one that you picked up at all? No, I didn't pick this one up. I mean, there's a lot about it that what you're saying suggests that I that I should have. Ram V being high among that, the uh, the in, inclusion of, of music and you know all of those sorts of things. So it might be uh, it might be one for trade for me. Yeah, that's fair. I think Ram stuff reads really well as trades. I mean, even though we read many Desolate Stars single issues, I know I'm going to be picking that trade up just so mm. I can read it all in one. And you'll probably hear more of Lila Star if we we're. we're currently talking about an end of year best of show but uh we'll see if we'll get to that as well thankfully someone has a really useful spreadsheet of all <laughs> of our picks of the week for the year uh so a little shout out to you and one that will definitely i think highly feature on that would be your next pick which i am so shocked is not a pick of the week yeah yeah absolutely um i guess part of the re i mean it, it it always comes very close to being pick of the week, and it's hard not to pick an issue of this, you know, in any given any given week that it's out. But Nice House on the Lake number six um, was an absolute killer. Like it was, I mean, I guess so. In this issue, in every issue, there are ten symbols on the cover of uh, of Nice House on the Lake. Those ten symbols, uh, and represent the guests in the house, the characters. And in this issue, number six, those those ten symbols were joined by an additional one, uh, an additional symbol, that the symbol for the painter, Reg, who uh, joins our troop, or rather, they join him, and everything changes, but we're not quite sure if this is part of Walter's plan or if it's not, and whether or not Walter's plan might be more benign than we thought. Um, it just all... It just all changes, but I, I'm just going to take a moment, you know, and tell you, as you well know, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole reason I thought this would be a pick of the week, just for that statement. I mean, it was, you know, the, the last five issues, I've done a fair bit of of, uh, of, of looking at the back matter and, and having a wee look, and I, I just knew that Reg would be appearing and he would be the painter. I mean, you can't. I think. I think it's on record, isn't it? I think yeah, it's on record. Yeah, it's on record. Yeah, but, but yeah. I mean, I think we're halfway there now, and this is such a time to be taking a break because the house in the lake is being closed up for the winter, and it doesn't reopen again until March twenty twenty two. How can they do this to us? <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's. I mean, that's not to say we're not getting the answers that we asked for. It's just that we maybe might not find ourselves very happy about the asking those questions in the first place because this is uh it's such a terrifying book you know it's so good but you know a lot of our revelations this issue come through rage who in james tenyon the fourth's hands becomes much more than i guess the the expositional and explanational device that he could have been and through nora who appears in flashbacks here in her pre-transitionary identity uh, you know, where we, we learn a lot about those relationships back at, I guess it was college. And things have started to unwind a wee bit for our crew. And uh, and and uh, Reg and his revelations might be just what they all need to bring them back together right before the next plot turn just blows them apart completely. <laughs> what did you reckon on this? 
Oh, same again. This is a series that just gets better and better, and it really rewards rereading and you know looking at all the clues. And and nothing is in this world accidentally. This is for me out of all of Tinian's book. This is probably the most densely plotted in terms of details, individual character motivations, how long they've all known Walter. Uh, there's there's just so much to it. I mean, as you say, just even something as simple as the fact there was ten symbols on the cover, you know, and now it's the eleventh, you know, and and mm-hmm. things like that. We. When we first saw those symbols on the front, we thought that was how many issues the series was going to be. Uh, and then that's changed a little bit here and there as well. Mm-hmm. So, as you say, it's a little bit of a shame that we have to wait until March for the next issue. But I have no doubt it'll be worth the wait. The The trade, I think, is actually hitting the same week, I think. And it's going to have it one is. of the six in it. It is, yeah. So, uh, if you're behind the Nice House in the Lake, that'd be the perfect jumping on point. Uh, trade covering one to six out in March along with issue seven as well. So... Yeah, Tinian continuing to uh, knock it out of the park with regards to Nice House on the Lake. Mm-hmm. And we're going to stay with Tinian as I talk about my next uh, honourable mention, and that is Batman 117. So so this is, uh, as I said, James Tinian the fourth writing. This is Jorge Jimenez on art. And so Tinian's run on Batman pretty much comes to an end with this issue, although you do have the Fear State Omega one-shot that follows as well. And for me, it's a mostly satisfying end to what has been a very good run on Batman. I mean, there have been times to me it seemed to focus more on introducing new characters and trying to be attractive to the speculators market. I mean, punchline anyone. But he did also elevate the Scarecrow to new heights and he managed to infuse the Bat family with a lot of heart and heroics and, and family. Uh, there's There's been a lot of character development for Harley Quinn throughout the series as well and that in itself I think is a massive achievement. Uh, we've also a seemingly new status quo for Poison Ivy as Tinian picked up Tom Keane's baton when he established Ivy as possibly the most powerful of all of Batman's rogues gallery. And then the, one of the main things for this run that's been superb for me is Jorge Jimenez's art. You know, throughout the run, it's been nothing short of spectacular. There's been incredible amounts of detail, motion blurring, lighting techniques, and more making it stand out as one of the absolute best looking books on the rack. So, you know, there's a really wonderful sort of crescendo to the story where we have the bat family looking up at the sky you know at the bat symbols shimmering in the night Tinian and Jimenez essentially making sure to say their goodbyes properly I'll I'll certainly look back on Tinian's run with a lot of fondness you know the Joker war for me was a particular standout but I would be lying if I didn't say I was really looking forward to seeing what Joshua Williamson does with the Dark Knight along with new series regular artist Jorge Molina so you know, it's Tinian's been on the book now for you know close to three years. You know, so has it been that long? I, believe it or not, yeah, heck of a long run. So, you know, he picked up at eighty six, finished off at one seventeen. So, yeah, there's there's a good thirty issues plus tie-ins, plus annuals, plus one shots. A lot of the the secret files issues were very very good. You know, we always worry that those one shots are sort of cash grabs, but a lot of those were really good. The mm. the peacekeeper one really stood out for me. I thought the miracle Molly one was great. So yeah, Tinian again. He infused a lot into the into the world of the bat, and I think he I think he did the bat proud. I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It was. Uh, I mean, Fear State was really good. Uh, a really good uh, crossover or or, or storyline anyway. So uh, yes, yeah, so that was Batman One Seventeen, which is my last honourable mention for this week, and I believe Keith is going to finish us off with a couple of Marvel picks. That is correct. So a couple of quick ones from me. Shang Chi Number Six was um amongst all of the great stuff that came out uh on the on the week of the uh the 17th um this one definitely definitely stands out um 
and notably uh, Deke Rian's fantastic art stands tall. Um, Shang-Chi and the family get an unscheduled visit from the Avengers uh, looking for the Cosmic Cube, which, unbeknownst to Shang, his brother purloined a few issues back. Doesn't take long, as you might expect, for fisticuffs to ensue, and when the Avengers find themselves outmatched by Shang's Five Weapons Society, they call in the Thunder God, uh, who Shang-Chi, wielding the legendary Ten-Fist Sword, challenges to a one-on-one fight to avoid further violence. It's a fight that is absolutely the centerpiece of the issue and would make an absolutely fantastic movie set piece, uh, just on par with that scene in, a, in the first Avengers movie, you know, where where Cap and Thor and Iron Man go at each other. Um, there's a great cliffhanger in here and what continues to be a brilliant, if possibly underappreciated series. It's got a really solid core concept, it's got great action and is superbly plotted, but plotted by uh, Jean Lun Yang. Um, well worth a well worth a look. I don't know if you're on Shang Chi, are you? No, no. I I tend to read the Shang Chi stuff in trade. So right, right. Well, this I mean this these these runs by Jin and Yang have just been game changers. Different from the movie Shang. I mm-hmm. mean Shang Chi is a much more uh, confident character. Um, you know, much more established than 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 the MCU version, but uh, very very good as well. Um, another one, uh, sort of a C C list character that's been making great inroads is Kazar, the Lord of the Savage Land. Uh, issue three of his title was released in the 17th. And thematically, I think Kazar is as close as anything Marvel gets to doing what DC is doing with Swamp Thing, in that uh, this is also a great character study of a long-standing character with with deep sort of eco-horror roots, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is very much what Swamp Thing is. And, you know, while it's been interesting from the start of the series it's taken this year or two to really get warmed up and get its teeth into me but it's this one's a tense sort of brutal chapter that pushes the narrator forward the the action and the art are brilliant as is the reimagining of the character the conflict and evolution of Kazar following his death by the at the hands of the Kotari during empire and his subsequent resurrection uh, at the hands of the savage land itself and all this is set against the counterpoint of Kazar, also known as Kevin Plunders, his colonial ancestry and his father coming to the Savage Land in order to, to try and colonize it and and and, uh, and, and feed off it. Um, very, very good stuff. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it's another wee five-issue miniseries, I think, as well, isn't it, Kazar? Not sure. Uh, whenever I whenever I jumped on it, I wasn't sure if it was a, a long run series or if it was a, a five issue. I'd be disappointed to find it was five issues. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's just a wee short uh, short mini series as well. Andy's jumped on it at the the last second as well and is getting the issues back traced. So, yeah, Kazar, no. Lord of the Savage. That's not to say that it won't be a five issue mini series. And then you have Kazar, you know, just a different you know subtitle to it that kind of thing but i think for lord of the savage land it is just a, uh, a five issue so yeah mm-hmm. that is the honorable mentions then for the 17th of november and we're going to go on then to picks of the week where i think keith is just going to be tutting his whole way through my pick <laughs> of the week so i'm sorry it has to be done i'm breaking our one and only well i think we only really have one rule and for the second time my pick of the week is an issue of The Walking Dead Deluxe. So we're talking Walking Dead Deluxe number 27, written by Robert Kirkman, art by Charlie Adler, and colours by Dave McKeague. So this read-through of The Walking Dead at the pace of a new issue every two weeks really is an absolute pleasure. You just 
forget how good this series is and how many more issues there are to go and instead you just get wrapped up in the brilliant storytelling absorbing characters brilliant world building and the great art of uh, of one of the best ever you know the sense of foreboding that hangs over this issue is incredible you know they they even found a way to underline that tension by David Finch's simple but really effective cover for the issue, which depicts our heroes approaching Woodbury, you know, the sign just lying crooked on the side of the road. Um, and if you've read the series before, you know what that means, and it ain't good, I can tell you. And even the second time around, it really makes your skin crawl. So the setup for issue 27 is nice and simple. So Rick, Glenn and Michonne have found the wreckage of a helicopter that flew past them in a previous issue and they set out to investigate. So they get there, they don't find any bodies, but they do find some sets of footprints and decide to investigate further. And, and this leads them to Woodbury and into the path of the governor. So th- for me, this is where The Walking Dead starts to change because up until now, the zombies have served as the big, bad, and omnipresent evil for the series. You know, of course, our heroes need to find food, and they squabble amongst each other, and we had some confrontations with the prisoners, for example. But this is where The Walking Dead ups gears and shows you just how bad humanity can get in a world where old rules no longer apply. You know, power and influence is there for the taking if you're willing to do whatever it takes to seize it. And what's fantastic about this issue is that it also establishes another and what would turn out to be a long-running trope for The Walking Dead. Begin the issue with hope for a better tomorrow and end the issue with that hope being seriously crushed out completely in the worst possible way. (laughs) You know, the governor starts off as a smiling, friendly guy, happy to talk to these, quote, strangers, show them around the small community they've built, introduce them to a few people. And it's all done in a way where Rick, Glenn, and Michonne are able to sort of start relaxing. You know, they think they've found good people that maybe hope exists still in the world. And maybe these are people they can work with to establish, you know, that better tomorrow. But by the end of the issue, that could not be further from the truth. And we learn exactly what the governor likes to do with strangers, utilizing them in a way that keeps the masses in line and entertained. You know, there's other stories continuing as well, such as the relationship between Laurie and Carol deteriorating after Carol suggests she marry Rick and Laurie and the three of them have a shared relationship. There's there's some great dialogue here, especially from Laurie, where she establishes hard truths. You know, all these survivors, they're not necessarily friends. They've just been lumped together. You know, they're simply reliant on each other to survive and they probably wouldn't have even looked at each other in the world before. But... This issue is all about the governor and establishing just what a force of nature he will become. You know, he is the very definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing. The final few panels will send shivers down your spine as his motives become crystal clear. And another great joy of reading The Walking Dead Deluxe, you know, special mention has to go to the cutting room floor material. You know, Kirkman had a couple of different script ideas for this issue and he does as usual, you know, his self-depreciating commentary on both. The Walking Dead Deluxe, it just continues to go from strength to strength. And believe it or not, we're only an eighth of the way in to what is undoubtedly one of the best and most important comics ever created. So I'm sorry I had to break the rule again. I've no doubt I'll do it again in the future at some point. But oh, what an issue. What an issue. I mean, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in your weakness, Alan, you know, <laughs> in the face of this. But uh, it would be hard to, to pick a stronger issue to, to break the rule for because... Yeah, as you everything everything that you said applies. This is just it's fantastic, you know, right down to to Glenn's sort of vulnerability, you know, whenever he's you know, put by himself and put next to the you know, the the cell where 
Michonne's being brutally raped by the governor, you know, and, and, and how that's affecting him. It's it's uh, it's really oh fucking horrendous stuff. Like it's it's but then, you know, part of what Kirkman wanted to do was to to look at at the, the depths of of human behaviour, you know, in light of society falling to pieces completely. Um, you know, and yeah, as you say, this is the point at which the va- the, the, the vampires go to the vampires, the zombies, um, become <laughs> the you know, the environmental threat, the threat that can be managed. It's 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 now that we realise in this series that humans are the real threat to one another. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, again that's a testament to Kirkman's storytelling. He took nearly five story arcs to reach that point. You know, he was able to effectively, you know, uh, frame the zombies as the main threat in this world and you know always sleeping with one eye open in case they find you and stuff but for me this is just this is the issue where it all changes this is the you know you think zombies are bad they're mindless and shuffle along and you can avoid them when you've got someone who can think someone who can manipulate people into following them because that's the thing like it's not in this issue it's in the next issue that you know you see the governor going all around the the village after being an absolute bastard to rick and michonne and everything and he's nice as pie and really friendly to people and this and that and oh he's just he's such a great character but he's also the one of those characters that because of all this horrible stuff he does you can't help but find yourself really looking forward to him getting this come up and because you know <laughs> yeah, it ain't yeah. gonna be pretty yeah, yeah. even pretty. even negan is the bastard that this guy is oh yeah negan has redeeming features and yeah, negan yeah. has charm the governor has none of that, and he's just an, a thorough psychopath. But yeah, I, it had to be picked. I had to break the rules. So Walking Ooh. Dead Deluxe number 27. So why don't you tell us who your pick of the week was and how you're not breaking any rules and picking it? Not at all. Um, it's a DC book. It's Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow number five. Uh, Tom King and uh, uh, Everly Bilquis. Um, absolutely fantastic. I mean, Tom King's comics whether it be you know rorschach or, or mr miracle or you know um what do you call it uh, strange adventures or you know any of that never seemed to follow a smooth narrative arc um i mean there's there's maybe an expectation of the work on the reader's part and you know maybe sometimes that can hold us back but Whenever they make their impact, they really do just that. And you know, this this has just been this this series has just been great from the from the start and continues continues to be. And you know, in that way, the series is you know, in that way of of, of not following the smooth narrative arc, the series has been more of a loosely connected sequential series of vignettes as Kara and Ruthie continue their search for the murderous bandit Krem, uh, who murdered uh, Ruthie's father and stole his sword. The narrative is provided by journal-like entries from some older version of Ruthie that has, you know, that 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 has tied things together beautifully. And this issue, they find Krem, uh, only for the villain to pull off some complex magical ritual and send them across the universe to the other side of existence, to a hell world, where they're immediately greeted by a leviathan that almost crushes them underfoot. Nakara, Supergirl, is able to hold it off, but only for a few seconds, as as her powers are starting to weaken because this word doesn't have a yellow sun or even a neutral Kryptonian, from a Kryptonian's point of view, even a neutral red sun. And a callback to an obscure Superman story from like 50 years ago. I think it's Superman number 155, released in 1962. This is a world with an artificial kryptonite sun that's designed to kill Superman, and every second in it is making Kara weaker and sicker. 
So this is an interesting flip in the dynamic of the story so far because this series has very much been in the vein of classic, you know, tropes like True Grit, you know, the warrior and the young girl who hires them. But here it's Kara who is the vulnerable one as she battles through pain and sickness to survive 10 hours until the sun sets. I think Kaliel was keen and, and, and survived like 47 minutes or something. <laughs> 10 hours. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this this situation then makes Ruthie, the, the young girl, into the strong one, armed with only a sword, not even her father's sword, and her own grit as she battles off an army of monsters looking to make a meal of the day in Supergirl. But as the pain increases and the madness sinks in, Kara starts to become a threat to herself and to, to Ruthie, you know, and their, their own survival. Um, the emotional stakes in the back third of the issue are some of the best in the series so far, I think. And, you know, uh, Belkus Evoli's designs of the monsters are really <laughs> kind of nasty, you know, kind of horrible old, um, you know, mouth parts and, you know, you know the kind of it, you know, and the, the pace and the tone is, is, is harrowing and there's a, there's a, a real sense of relief whenever the fun, the sun finally sets, you know, when the, the two heroes head towards the next stage of their journey. You know, they'll after that issue, they'll, Tom and them will both have a, have a tough act to follow because it's an absolutely brilliant issue. I think we say that after nearly every issue. That's the thing. This is this is the almost the subversion of Tom Keen's series in a way and that every issue from day one has been just hitting the nail on the head, mm-hmm. has been fantastic. Usually... The Tom Keane stuff, you know, and you know I'm a huge fan, you know, fully paid up member of the Cult of Keane, yep, as you yep, like to yep. tell me. Indeed. But this is probably one of his most, if not his most immediate series. And for it to be a character that maybe, not that people aren't as familiar with, but you know what I mean? You put Superman ahead of Supergirl, you know, that kind of thing. You know, you could just jump straight into this and just be instantly transported. This beautiful world they've created. Each issue is almost a one shot in its own sense. You know, format wise, it's actually starting to remind me a little bit of Superman up in the sky, which mm. is where every issue was a self contained issue in a way, but it was all about reaching one goal to take them on to the next, to take on to the next. And it really suits that format. And yeah, Tom's amongst the best of this, you know, mini series. Uh, and again, it's just been strong all the way through. But that art, I mean, this is up there with the best looking comics of the year, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this as well. It is a shame it's only eight issues. Uh, when the mind of Tom sticking to his usual format here and giving us twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is this is probably my favorite series that Tom King has released so far. Oof, them's big words. He would have to it, really. I, You'd have to really mess up the last few issues to take that away from you. Yeah, me. I'd say so. I would say so. But uh, good stuff. Glad you're enjoying it as well. No, great title. So it is. And again, it's a very popular one in store. But again, plenty of people like to take our advice of following creators as much as uh, as much as characters. So yeah, that is Supergirl, a woman of tomorrow five, which was Keith's pick of the week for the 17th of November. So another week caught up and uh, another set of reviews will be coming your way very soon as well as we then go through the 24th of November so as ever if you're a little late to some of these series you know get in touch with us in the store we'll always do our best to source the issues for you or of course give you the information if you're prepare- if you're preferring to wait on that waiting the trades coming out as well so cheers as always to my brother in arms on the comic podcast Keith and uh, we'll look forward to Pleasure. seeing you guys back again soon So I've been Alan Taylor and this has been Keith Miller. 
You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.